And it's another week. This is Andrew Wood, Executive Director of Hope Resource Center. Thank you so much for tuning in. Whether that be live over at Joy620 or listening to the podcast at investinghope.com, iTunes, Google Play, Podbeam, wherever podcasts are found, you can find this show. We're grateful for that. <clears throat> we have a lot to talk about today. Today is Election Day. Uh, and so big, big time election. Of course, we don't have any of the returns and we're not really, the polls haven't closed yet. Uh, but I'll give you uh, my assessment and what I think may happen when all the polls close and we get uh, we get the tallies and we'll, we'll see what happens there. I'll give you my predictions uh, coming up in a bit. Uh, there's a uh, again, there's a lot still happening around the country when it comes to life and abortion. There's some proposals that are on uh, the ballot in a number of different states that uh, that are going to uh, change things uh, for those states. Uh, but but what I want to start with, there's a there's an article over at Washington Examiner that highlights the great work of pregnancy centers. And the, the, the headline is, amid a downturn, one industry is thriving. Its commodity is women in need. And it's over at the Washington Examiner. And, and I think it's interesting because oftentimes uh, you, you don't see these type of articles. Now, obviously, this isn't a liberal-leaning uh, publication, but still, you, you typically don't see this type of article concerning pregnancy centers, so I want to walk you through it. Political pundits seem to think elections are about abortion or the economy. It never seems to occur to them that the two are inextricably linked. The abortion industry relies, and many argue, preys on economically struggling communities. Consider that nearly 44% of Planned Parenthood affiliates' revenue this past year was from taxpayer dollars public programs that are targeted at low-income communities. Women often seek abortions for economic reasons. This is statistically substantiated as higher abortion rates are tied to economic depressions and recessions, as well as to lower income levels. After a long-term decline in the abortion rate during the COVID-19 pandemic, it actually reversed and the rate increased. Pregnant women went uh, under financial pressure, fear they can't afford to raise their child, that their work and thus their income would be compromised by doing so, or that they would otherwise risk their financial independence by bringing a child into the picture. So they often choose to end the life of the child in their womb. For these women, abortion is a tragedy, not a choice. In our experience, 76% of our <clears throat> abortion-determined clients say they would actually prefer to parent if their circumstances were different. That's why the pro-life movement developed a robust network of pregnancy resource centers. There are more than 3,000 such centers across the U.S. delivering more than $266 million annually on average in estimated material and pro, uh, programmatic uh, support to vulnerable women and families. Unlike general social service programs, this network is designed specifically for pregnant women in need, and it is unmatched at serving them during this economic crisis. It is not only the pro-life movement working to holistically raise the bar for women in need. 14, 14 states have variations of alternatives to abortion programs providing tangible needs for women. Abortion supporters unanimously oppose these programs. They want there to be only one option for women in need, abortion. Not to care for women, not to leave women better than when they found them, not to alleviate long-term challenges they face in their lives. Women leave their clinics, the abortion clinics, and return to the struggles that brought them in. Meanwhile, they advocate profitability and neglect under the guise of care. What's worse, they oppose those working tirelessly to serve women. If the abortion industry actually wanted to help women, it would champion programs that provide resources instead of voting against them. It would turn abortion clinics into affordable gynecological 
care for low-income women instead of closing as abortions make up more than 96% of Planned Parenthood services. It would support not violently vandalize pro-life centers. It would stop working to shut them down. Vice President Harris even praised activist state attorney Attorneys General for taking on these essential resource providers without ever noting the violence they consistently endure at the hands of pro-abortion activists. I'm forced to conclude that the real motive abortion activists have for undermining pregnancy resource centers, particularly in the throes of economic recession, is the growth of the abortion industry. Research indicates that revoking material support for vulnerable women and families is likely to spike abortion rates. That's what we know is the case. I mean, here, here's the reality. There, there is still folks that want to see abortion on demand across the country for any reason at any point during the pregnancy. And so when we talk about life and when we talk about abortion and when we talk about the work that's being done, we, we see clearly the dichotomy that, that we're presented with. You have some folks that are going to err on the side of life. You have some folks that are going to err on the side of death or the side of selfishness or the side of you got to have your dreams, not your baby, or the side of fill in the blank. You can't afford a baby. You're in a bad relationship. How are you going to complete your degree? You can't be a single parent. You see, so instead of, instead of being encouraging to these folks, we, we have a culture that says you don't need that baby anyway. And it's not helpful. It's harmful, actually. It's harmful for a culture. It's harmful for our society. It's harmful for our towns, for our cities, for our suburbs, for our inner cities, for our rural communities. It is harmful to tell a population that your baby doesn't deserve life. That is a harmful message. Yet here we are. Why? Because the abortion industry makes a ton of money off this. Oh, well, it's not about the money. It's because we care about women. No, it's not. Because, again, if you cared about women, you wouldn't charge a dime for your services. Pregnancy centers don't charge. So why are you? If it was just about caring for the women, when a state outlawed abortion, you wouldn't close your doors. Because you were about serving women, not serving abortion. But that's what they do. They close their doors. We had an abortion clinic in Knoxville close its doors. As soon as Dobbs came down, that clinic closed its doors, not serving any women for any reason. Hey, we can't provide abortions. There's no reason for us to stay open. That is what they did. Why is that? Because of money. If it was about helping women, there's other ways to help women. But it's about abortion. It's about ending the life of children. It's about believing the lie that says you can't have your baby and your dreams. You're going to have to pick one or the other. You see, the abortion industry is about saying some people need to have kids and we don't mind them having kids. But but those other folks, the low income folks where we're opening our doors. Yeah, we don't want them to have children. They're in a rough shape already. The last thing they need to do is bring a child into the world. That's the abortion industry's message. That's Planned Parenthood's message. That's Margaret Sanger's message. 
The document that I referenced a couple weeks ago, that's the message of that document, is depopulation, disincentivize family, break down the family structure. So, so it's all tied together, and, and they, they act as if it's because they care about women. Well, no, it's not. And, and what I've said on here before is now that Dobbs has taken Roe out of the equation, now that it's back to the states, and you have states like Tennessee that have said no abortions here. Now what you're finding is you're, you're seeing politicians and others not be able to articulate their position without sounding barbaric. Why? Because it is barbaric to defend abortion all through nine months. NPR this past week. NPR, government-funded news agency released audio and a report where the reporter is in the, in the abortion exam room with a patient. And they have the, the microphone on so that you hear the interaction between the abortionist and the patient. You hear the agonizing pain in the patient's voice. You hear her grunt and you hear her I don't want to say scream, but you definitely hear pain. And then you hear the suction of a machine come on. While this woman is being given an abortion, an NPR reporter is calmly talking, saying, it's very similar to a birth. Bare legs in a stirrups, patient on the table. You know, abortion is very similar to birth. No, it's the opposite it's the opposite. And now we have a government-funded news agency playing for all to hear an abortion on a patient. And, and, and we're just supposed to hear that and think, oh, this is no big deal. This, this is why they are wrong. They believe the bulk of the populace will hear that and go, yeah, abortion is okay. But the reality is the bulk of the populace is going to hear that and go, well, hold on, you told me it wasn't painful. You told me this wasn't an issue. You told me this. You told me that. She seems like she's in great pain. And just because she's being coached, you can do this. You can that, That's not empowering. Instead of during the abortion telling this patient, you can do this, you got this, you're strong, you're tough. How about while she's pregnant, you just say, hey, you can do this, you got this, you're tough, and we're going to be there for you. You can be a mom. You're a mom right now. You can have this baby. You see, it's not really encouraging or empowering while the patient is laying on the exam table getting an abortion it's not empowering to say, you can do this, you got this. You want to know what's empowering? Empowering is doing what we're doing at Hope Resource Center, where we see the patient come in and we say, you got this, you can do this. Six months pregnant, hey, you got this, you can do this, we're going to be here for you. We got a mentor for you. We're going to throw you a baby shower. We have parenting classes for you. Oh, we also have dad's classes for your boyfriend, for your husband. We, we are going to be in this with you throughout the pregnancy and beyond. You can do this. You got this. 
You see the mantra of, I am woman, hear me roar. That is what being a mom is about. I got this. I can do this. It's not laying there helpless on an exam table while an abortionist ends the life of your child. That is not empowering or encouraging. But that's what our culture would have you believe. And so when we think about the work of pregnancy centers across this country, what is happening in those buildings is empowering women, encouraging women. It's the Susan B. Anthony type feminism that says, I am woman, hear me roar, but also I am woman, I can have babies. I can be a mom. I don't have to pick my dreams or my baby. I can do both. You see, that's feminism that I want my little girls growing up with. The feminism of 2022 is saying, hey, we don't even know what a woman is. That's not feminism. That's not empowering. That's not encouraging. It's debilitating. Instead, I want to see us empower and encourage women to step into the, uh, their true identity. Their uniqueness, their, their womanness, their motherly ability. That yes, they can do and be anything, but they don't have to put the idea of being a mom on the shelf in order to do that. So whether it be the abortion industry attacking pregnancy centers physically or NPR playing the recording or the the live um, taping of an abortion, their, their goal is not empowerment. Their goal is to take away truly what womanhood is. So if you want to know what's encouraging and what's empowering, go talk to someone that works at a pregnancy center and you'll find out real quick what that looks like. We'll be back. So as we continue the conversation, today is election day. So what does that mean? What does that mean across the country? What does that mean uh for states around the union. If you've been paying attention at all, you've seen folks talk about a red wave. You've seen some folks say it's going to be a red tsunami. I've heard some uh, analysts say it's going to be more of a red wedding, that uh, the Senate could possibly, uh, Republicans could pick up up to 56 seats in the Senate, uh, which would be just monumental. And then in 2024, that could go over 60, uh, which would be huge. The Uh, it looks as if, without a doubt, the House is going to flip. So we, we, from from all uh, analysis that I've seen, the House and Senate is going to flip in D.C. The question is, by how much? But it it definitely, at this point, is going to go red. Now, this isn't out of the norm. Uh, Typically, uh, the midterm election of a newly elected president, if that president... uh, is with a certain party, the other party typically does well in the midterms because the populace as a whole likes to have uh, a divided, divided branches of government. So the populace as a whole likes to have one party in the Oval Office 
and maybe another party in the House and Senate, or they don't typically the populist does not want, say, a Republican controlled Oval Office, House and Senate or a Democrat controlled Oval Office, House and Senate. They, the people tend to like, hey, this is a good balance and, and uh, checks and balances. Let's give two parties control in different portions. But what we're finding is a lot of folks, if you look at the approval rating of the current president, not doing well. And so a lot of folks are saying, I'm definitely going to vote a different way. If you look at the polls, they're, they're saying inflation, uh, crime, immigration, you know, jobs, gas prices, all these things, diesel prices. My gosh, if you my father in law drives a diesel and, and he was having to drive to multiple gas stations over the weekend just to find diesel. And when he did find it, it was like five thirty five a gallon. And, and they're talking now that in some parts of the country, they're not going to have any in, in the near future. Because production is so low. And, and if we if we see diesel go that direction, Think for a second how many semi-trucks you see on the interstate on a daily basis. Well, those trucks are delivering goods all over the country. That The vast majority of the products that we receive in our homes or on the shelves at the grocery store or fill in the blank made their way there by a semi-truck that runs off diesel. And so there, there's questions of what does that mean? That's going to be a trickle-down effect. If diesel goes away... Or if semi-trucks have trouble finding diesel, or if the price goes up, then where they're going to have to make up that price somewhere. And so all of this is happening, and people are going, hey, I'm going to vote a certain way because of that. And then what you find is this administration is still trying to make abortion the issue. They're still trying to make abortion the Hey, this is the number one issue now. You know, if you if you elect Democrats. In the House and the Senate, then the first thing we go, this is what the president said, the first thing we will do is codify Roe. Now, they are saying that because they believe, I think wrongly, but they believe that the bulk of the populace wants to see Roe codified. That is not supported by any data or any poll. If you want to know what the, uh, the, the, the common... The common position on abortion. And this was the common position for even the president for, for mo- much of his career. Now, this is a position I don't agree with. But again, my position on abortion is not the common one. But, but here's the common position on abortion. Tulsi Gabbard has the common position on abortion. Now, if you remember, Tulsi, Tulsi Gabbard ran for president in the Democratic primary and lost. But she said some things, even in that primary, where you thought she really looks like she's more middle of the road than, than some of these others. She went after Kamala Harris in the primary, and many say that's why Kamala had to drop out, is because Tulsi Gabbard really uh, took her to task on a number of things. But here's Tulsi Gabbard's position. She's, she's talking about the Michigan proposal that's on the, on the ballot. She says, I urge Mich- Michigan residents to protect women parental rights, and children by voting against Proposal 3 that includes loopholes to allow late-term partial birth abortion, which is really infanticide, and overturns laws to inform parents of a child pursuing abortion or hormone therapies. So Tulsi Gabbard's position is she believes there should be some restrictions on abortion. 
But she believes abortion in the earliest stages should be allowed. And she believes that abortion and rape and incest should be allowed. Abortion in the case of life of the mother should be allowed. She believes abortion in the first trimester should be allowed. That is her position. And, and here it is, folks. Most people would probably line up with that. Now, I wouldn't. But most people will line up with that. And, and most conservatives, most pro-lifers even, and we've shown this over the years, would support legislation that would say, say as such. That's why when, when, when Lindsey Graham came out and talked about the 15-week ban from a federal level, what that did was that made and forced Democrats to actually get a position. And, and, and it forced reporters to actually have to ask the question, do you agree with restrictions at any point? And if you can't answer that, and what, what has happened up until June 24th was when you, would, when you would ask a politician or anyone in the abortion industry, do you believe it's ever okay to have restrictions on abortion? What was their response? Their response was a spin. Their response was, we believe it's up to a woman and her doctor. We believe it's a woman's right, as, as shown in the case of Roe in 1973, and that gave us a fundamental right to abortion. See, they won't answer the question if they believe there should be restrictions or not, but they didn't have to answer the question. Because at that point in time, it was what they would say a constitutional right. So you could ask them until you were blue in the face, and they would always spin and go, well, it's a woman's right, it's up to a doctor, it's up to a woman and her doctor, it's not up to anyone else. So they would never answer the question. Now you take away Roe, and the premise that, that abortion is a fundamental right. You take that away, and now it goes back to the states. You couple that with Lindsey Graham coming out and saying, hey, we need a federal law that would say we, we need a 15-week ban. So now, now Lindsey Graham is not arguing at that moment, hey, we need to say that life begins at conception. And we need to ban all abortion. What Lindsey Graham is doing, and from a political perspective, that's very smart. What Lindsey Graham is doing in that moment is saying, hey, we're just saying we're going to go with what the polls say. The polls of this country say that, that the vast majority of the populace believe in a 15-week ban, which is ultimately what Mississippi said, which is ultimately what got us Dobbs, which is ultimately what overturned Roe. So in essence... What that law would do, if passed by Congress, would give us the Mississippi law across the country. But, but what it also did, and Lindsey Graham bringing that up, is it put the pressure on those that, that fight for abortion. And it puts pressure on reporters to ask the question. So we hear a question asked to President Biden, do you believe there's ever, there should ever be restrictions? And he stumbled. He didn't know how to answer that. You hear the question asked to Stacey Abrams, and she doesn't care because she is barbaric to her core. And so she says, no, there should never be a restriction. You know what? As a matter of fact, abortion would fix inflation. But most candidates are unwilling to go all in because they know it makes them sound barbaric. So Tim Ryan in Ohio refuses to answer that question. Warnock refuses to answer that question directly. Katie Hobbs in Arizona refuses to answer that question directly. Charlie Crist in Florida refuses to answer that question directly. And the list goes on and on and on. 
So now they're backpedaling because they don't know how to answer this and handle this question. And so that's where we are. And that's where having this conversation, finally, now that it's back to the states, we get to have a true debate on the issue. And I think what you're going to find is the bulk of the populace lines up more with Tulsi Gabbard and her position. And that is why you're going to see some of the decisions made and the folks elected across this country is because of that. We'll be back. So as we look at Election Day, and for those of you that listen to this and are like, uh, I don't know if I like all the, the political pontifications and analysis. Well, after today, we'll, we'll kind of move on to some other stuff. But today's Election Day. And so, so many that are listening to this show probably are like me and are following a number of things and trying to figure out what this means for the country moving forward. What's, what's this mean for our state? Uh, you know, and, and, and here's what we're going to see, in my estimation, is you're going to see red states stay red. If, if anything, they're going to get redder. So, so DeSantis in Florida is going to win running away. He, he may even get a larger margin than Jeb Bush did years ago, and, and Jeb Bush was a well-loved governor of Florida. DeSantis is going to win that running away. Charlie Crist has no chance of, of even getting close to DeSantis, which, man, how far have we come? Because when DeSantis won his first term, he beat Gillum, the Democratic candidate, by just barely. He barely beat him. The polls were saying that, that Gillum was going to win. And now we've gotten to a place of DeSantis is not only winning the hearts of those in, in Florida, but he's winning the hearts of many around the country. And he has made his name at the top of the list, uh, certainly at the top of the list if Trump doesn't throw his name in the hat for 2024. But even if Trump throws his name in the hat, it's going to be Trump or DeSantis for 2024 unless something crazy happens between now and then. And so DeSantis is going to win that one running away. Marco Rubio is going to win running away. Florida is is no longer a battleground state. It is fully uh, red. I mean, we saw that even back in 2020 as Trump won Florida, and it's just continued to move in that direction. Why is that? Well, Governor DeSantis has made some hard decisions over the last couple of years, and a lot of people have left Liberal strongholds like New York and California made their way to Florida. That's just the reality. A lot of people have moved into that state because they wanted the freedom that Florida and DeSantis and his team brought about. So that is what's happened. He handled Hurricane Ian was kind of a, uh, you don't want to talk like this, but, but in politics, Hurricane Ian was a, uh, a moment for DeSantis. Uh, is he going to lead well or is he going to flounder? And the man led exceptionally well, uh, and, and the people of Florida love their governor. I, I think in Tennessee, you're, you're going to see Bill Lee another four years. I don't think that's any question. Uh, you're going to see Tim Burchett win here locally. I don't think that's a question. And, and so I think Andy Ogles in Middle Tennessee is going to win that Congress seat uh, over Heidi Campbell. I mean, the, the list goes on and on uh, in the state of Tennessee. But the state of Tennessee has been red, will be red for a long, long time. The interesting thing is going to be in, in the state of New York. So, so we, again, we talked about this, I don't know if it was last week or the week before, on where people, where are the, the parties putting their time and effort? Okay, so in the, in the days leading up to the election, what you tend to see is 
you'll see the party go into areas that they don't think they can necessarily win, but hey, maybe we can shore it up a little bit. So, so a, a, a Republican party is not going to put a lot of effort in the state of Florida because they think, look, it's over. A Republican party may not put a lot of effort in the state of Tennessee because they're like, look, we got that one locked down. That's our base. No worries. So a Democratic party in the same way will not put a lot of effort in the state of California. In, in traditional times, they'll not put a lot of effort in a state like Oregon or Washington or New York or Pennsylvania or Colorado. But in 2022, leading up to the election, what do we see? We see President Biden in Pennsylvania. We see former President Barack Obama visiting New York and Pennsylvania. You, you see money being spent in Colorado, in Oregon, in Washington, leading up to the election. And these are supposed to be the basis of the vote. So what that tells me and what that tells many that are watching this is there's some concern there that they may not win those states. So the question is, will Governor Hockle, Hochul, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, who has not been elected, remember, she just took the place of Cuomo. So Cuomo resigned, had to step down because of some uh, indiscretions. So she became governor, unelected, was appointed. So this is her first real election for governor. And Zeldin is making headway. Zeldin, the Republican candidate. And so uh, he's running on crime. He, he's running on freedom when it comes to mandates and different things that are happening in the state of New York. He's running on a number of different things. And so will Zeldin win? Here's my, I believe that he will be Hochul and I believe he'll become a Republican governor of New York, which will be huge win for the Republican party. Will the Republican candidate win in the state of Oregon for governor? That there is talk now that he, that that governor candidate may win. The, the guy that owns Nike has come out and endorsed the Republican candidate in the state of Oregon. That's huge. Colorado now looks like it's going to go red. Then we go to Arizona and we see Carrie Lake, who has made a huge name for herself over the last few months. Her opponent refuses to debate her. Her opponent refuses to do anything that would, that would allow for the, the constituency and the voters to see truly the differences that are laid out there. And Carrie Lake, I believe, is going to win that vote. The, the question is, will Carrie Lake win by enough that she'll kind of help Blake Masters get over the hump? Blake Masters running against Mark Kelly. Mark Kelly is the incumbent. Tough one to beat. Blake Masters has been running a good campaign. He had a couple uh, hiccups early on, but, but it's been doing well. Carrie Lake, Blake Masters, that'll be a huge get for Arizona. I think both of them win. Then you look at the state of Georgia, and you have Brian Kemp versus Stacey Abrams. There's a true dichotomy there. I mean, this is, this is a, you can't have a bigger difference between candidates. Brian Kemp will probably win that seat by 10 or more points. So no question he's going to win and become, uh, you know, serve his second term as governor. The question is, will he win by enough to help Herschel Walker? So similar in Arizona, Herschel Walker is running against Warnock. Warnock is the incumbent. Warnock is, is pro-abortion. Warnock is uh, very much a Stacey Abrams type candidate. Herschel Walker has had a few hiccups. He's loved by the state of Georgia for his football play from years ago. 
He's got 100% name ID. Everybody knows who Herschel Walker is. But I'm not sure if he could beat Warnock on his own. But Brian Kemp being, you know, bringing cover, Brian Kemp's going to win by a lot. I do think Brian Kemp and Herschel Walker win in the state of Georgia. Then you go up to Michigan. In Michigan, you have Governor Whitmer, the incumbent. She's been going around saying a lot of things that, that are interesting. Uh, some would say lies. When she talks about, she says schools were only closed for three months, and the people on the ground in Michigan saying schools were closed for nearly a year in the state of Michigan. If you remember, Governor Whitmer also put tape and stuff so you couldn't buy gardening seeds because she didn't want you gardening at your house during COVID. Governor Whitmer also put nursing home patients back inside nursing homes. If you want to hear my opinions on all that, I talked about that in, in depth uh, back when all that was happening with the state of New York and the state of Michigan. You can go back in the archives and hear about that. But Governor Whitmer is now saying that that was not uh, something that she did, but it's we have the receipts. We know that that happened. Tudor Dixon is running against Governor Whitmer. Tudor Dixon, the Republican candidate, kind of came out of nowhere. Over the last couple months, you, you know, I didn't even hear her name, but she's, she's really picked up momentum over the last couple months, done a really good job in the debate. Uh, and, and so the question is, will Tudor Dixon be able to defeat uh, Governor Whitmer? I believe Tudor Dixon wins that governorship in the state of Michigan. Now, we'll see. I think it's going to be close, but I, I do think Tudor Dixon will be able to win. The question is, will the proposal on the ballot that I mentioned earlier that Tulsi Gabbard was talking about, the proposal that allows for abortion all the way up to nine months, the proposal that allows for uh, transitioning and using of pronouns and hormone therapies without the parent's consent, that's on the ballot. And so the question is, will Michigan defeat that proposal? And, and you've got to think, if Tudor Dixon wins that governor's race, then people are going to be motivated also to vote against that proposal and keep Michigan a place where life is celebrated. Then you go to Ohio and you see Tim Ryan versus J.D. Vance. J.D. Vance, if you'll remember, if you if you followed any of this at any point, he wrote a great book called Hillbilly Elegy. Highly recommend it to you. Talking about his time in Appalachia, talking about his family and the struggles of drug addiction in the rural community and, and feeling like they were less than. It's a great book. But that's kind of where his, his uh, popularity came. And then he put his name in the hat and he's running against Tim Ryan. Tim Ryan... Uh, has struggled to really find his identity in this race. Uh, he, he wants to act like he's in the middle. He, he attacks the Democratic Party while voting right in line with everything they stand for. And so it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. But it looks like the polls are shaping up to where J.D. Vance is going to win that seat. So I'm not going to go through all the states, but that gives you an idea. I do think that we're going to have... Uh, the conservative folks, pro-lifers, are going to win a lot of seats. I think you're looking across the country, 30-plus, close to 40 Republican governors across the state or across the country. I think you're going to see the House and the Senate in Washington, D.C. flip red. I think you're going to see legislatures across the country flip red. Look, there's a, there's a moment right now and it's not necessarily because the, the, the conservative folks are doing things right. It's just I think people are going, look, something's got to give. Inflation is killing me. Interest rates are killing me. Gas is killing me. I'm nervous about heating my home. 
in the wintertime because how am I going to afford that? Food is killing me. Everything on the shelves is more expensive now than it was a year ago. I mean, the, the list goes on and on. So it, typically in an election, folks are going, hey, there's one issue that I care deeply about. Right now, what you're seeing is a host of issues that people are going, something's got to give. And so I'm just going to vote for the other side and hope they do what they say they're going to do. We'll talk more when we come back. So as we finish up today, look, I could go on and on about what the election is going to produce. And is it going to go conservative? Is it pro-lifers? You know, but, but here's, here's what's happening. Many in our society are tired and wore out. And so they don't get up every morning and think about who's in the White House. They don't get up every morning and think about who's in Washington or who's in their state capitol. They get up every morning and they think about, how, how am I going to feed my kids today? How am I going to keep the lights on today? How am I going to pay for the water today? How am I going to get gas in my vehicle today so that I can commute to work? You have farmers that are saying, how am I going to afford feed for my, my livestock? How am I going to do this? How am I going to do that? How am I going to make it one more year and keep this family farm together? You have parents saying, how am I going to put my kids in college with the price of tuition going up every single year? You have families saying, how am I going to get that job when it doesn't seem like there's jobs available for me? And the list goes on and on and on. And so some folks are going right now, look, I'm going to vote. I'm going to the polling place today. It's the first time I voted in years. Maybe I vote every single year, but I don't ever give it a lot of thought. Maybe my entire life I voted for one party, but today I'm taking a stand and voting for another one. Because something's got to give. Something has to change. Look, the vast majority of the populace are not political nuts like me. The vast majority of the populace in Tennessee aren't really paying attention to what's happening in Arizona, Michigan, Florida, Georgia, New York. The vast majority of folks are just trying to live life day by day, love their kids, be good members of the community, trying to build wealth. And so if you're a politician listening today and you're thinking, hey, this is my chance to take advantage of what is happening and I'm going to win election, all I would say is do what you said you were going to do. There's a lot of folks voting today. They're voting aspirationally. They're saying, I don't trust anybody that goes to Nashville or D.C. But I'm going to vote in the hopes that these folks do what they say they're going to do. So the question is, are you going to confirm their skepticism or are you going to affirm their aspirational hopes in the candidacy that you have put out there? And I hope it's the, la I hope it's the latter. I hope you're going to affirm. But if you're, if you're waking up or if you're driving today, maybe you're on your way to the polls today and you're like, I don't know. I don't know what to do. Does this even matter? Here's what I'm going to tell you. Voting does matter. It means something. There are people that, that gave their lives 
so that you had a right to vote, but they also gave their life so you have a right not to vote. That's the beauty of our country. But if you're listening to this right now and you're a believer and you're a Christian and you're going, I don't know, what, what, what should I do? Who should I vote for? And, and you're getting all worked up and you're putting all your hope in that particular candidate. Let me tell you this. They are fallen men and women. They will fail you. They may hold up some. They may affirm some of your aspirational thoughts, but for some, they're not going to. They will absolutely fail you, just like I will absolutely fail you. I'm making predictions today. All of those could be wrong tomorrow. So our hope is not placed in Democrats or Republicans or senators or congressmen. Our hope isn't placed in governors or judges or city officials or county officials. No, as gospel people, our hope is placed in the God of the universe. And he has tasked us with being involved in our communities, engaging in our communities, engaging in uh, in discourse, engaging in voting, engaging in leaving things better than we found it. All of those things we are tasked to do. But I'm going to lay my head down tonight. And I'm going to wake up tomorrow and some of these races may go away. I didn't think they would and they may upset me and it may frustrate me. But the reality is the God of the universe is still holding all of this together. And nothing's going to take him by surprise. I'll wake up in the morning and I'll go, I can't believe this happened. The God of the universe is going, it's exactly the way it was supposed to happen. Not going to surprise him. So rest in that in that peace. The sun will come up, my kids will get up, my family will move on. But again, that doesn't mean we don't engage, it doesn't mean we don't involve ourselves, we certainly do. But don't let it ruin your day and ruin your life if things go a different direction. Because we have hope in so much more than that. We have hope in our God. Happy Election Day, we'll talk to you next week.